Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Well, I'm Pastor Ben. It's my privilege this morning to share God's word as we're going to dive into the richness of God's truth and his scripture as we continue to ask the question, what happens next as we work through this sermon series called Afterlife? Now, as we begin our time together, I I want to tell you a little something about myself and really about me and my wife. You see, when we have the resources and when we have the time on our schedule, our favorite type of vacation to take is a cruise. Now, right now, we're in the midst of raising kids, and we have two kids at home. We have one on the way, and so that makes it complicated to be able to sneak off to a cruise, but we have gone on them in the past, and we look forward to maybe once these kids graduate, going on more in the future, but we love to go on a cruise because for us, a cruise is stress-free. You pay for everything up front, and once you get onto the boat, everything is taken care of all the food, all the entertainment, it's all free at that point in time. In fact, we first experienced this on our honeymoon. We saved up our pennies. I hadn't been on vacation in in years. And so on our honeymoon, I'm like, we are going to go on a cruise. We went out to Alaska. We got onto the boat. We got to experience this for the first time. We went into our cabin. We unpacked our luggage and we sat down with that schedule of all the things that we could do. And then we marked out what our week would look like. And it was amazing scheduling all the fun things, all the entertainment, all the concerts, all the comedians that that we could take in in one week. But as we were doing this, we noticed that some of the events had a little asterisk next to it. We're like, what is this little, what does this mean? And so as we looked down the page, we saw that there was like one or two special events where if you went to those, you got free champagne. Now, champagne was the only thing on the boat that was going to cost me money, so you better bet I was going to go to these special events. And so we went. We went to one, and we ended up in an art gallery. Now, I don't know how well you guys know me or my wife, but we are much more comfortable on a baseball field, softball field, playing basketball, tennis, anything with a sport. That, that's kind of our thing. An art gallery is basically the opposite of that. But we went because I wanted my free champagne. And so we walked down there and instantly we knew that we did not belong because we walked in with our tennis shoes, our athletic shorts, our t-shirt. And I'm certain I was wearing a Minnesota Twins hat. And we looked around and there was some oddballs in the room and it was us. But we did get our free champagne. And then we decided, you know what? We better walk around and actually take in the art because otherwise we're going to look like just freeloaders, which we were totally freeloaders. But anyways, we carried our champagne, we sipped on our champagne, and we looked at all these art pieces, one after the other after the other. And this is when we learned very quickly that we are not cultured. Because the pictures that we liked, the artwork that we liked, guess what? It cost very little. It had very little value. But then there were other, other pictures, other drawings that we thought, this looks like a kindergartner drew it. 
And guess what? Those were the most expensive with the most value. You see, we don't have that built into our DNA to see these pictures, to see their value, and to really pull out the, the meaning of these pictures, to really understand what the artist is trying to portray and what gives it the value that's, that's poured into it. Well, today, as we work through our sermon series and continue this conversation about the afterlife, we're going to actually look at a piece of art. We're going to look into the book of Revelation, which is an incredibly rich and deep and confusing tapestry of God's message to us. And so today we're going to begin in the book of Revelation. And this is what we're going to read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Like I said, the book of Revelation, it is an artistic masterpiece. It's apocalyptic literature, which if you've ever tried to read through the book of Revelation, you understand what I mean. There's a lot of imagery and it's very confusing, but it's not just the book of Revelation that's written like this. You see, if you went into the Old Testament, you'd see that God has communicated to man through these writers in the same way before, through the writings of, of Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah and others. There's this rich imagery, almost like a, a photo or a drawing that you have, to, you have to look at, you have to sip on your champagne, you have to take it and you have to have conversations, you have to dwell on it. And only after a ton of study and a ton of focus and a ton of conversation do you even begin to scratch the surface. That's what the book of Revelation is like. It takes years and years and years of biblical study and incredible discernment to just scratch the surface of what God is saying. It's why, unfortunately, many churches, we just, we just don't talk about the book of Revelation because it's so intimidating. But yet you can also make the other mistake too, which is we only talk about the book of Revelation and we assume we know all of the answers to everything, which of course is its own set of issues. So today, this is what we're gonna do. We are going to humbly approach this apocalyptic literature. We're gonna humbly uh, approach this magnificent artistic writing given to us by God, written by John for us. And as we do this, we're gonna ask three questions to start off. Who wrote it? Which I just said, it was John. We're gonna talk about why he wrote it. And also the third one is so important, how he wrote it. Those are the three questions we need to answer. So right away, like I said, this book was written by John. It's called the book of Revelation. Sometimes it's called the apocalypse of John. And if you wanna know who John is, there's a lot of Johns mentioned in the Bible, but this is the disciple John. And he was an incredible, important, historical figure. Not only was he a follower of Christ, an apostle of Christ, he walked with Christ, did ministry with Christ for three years. He heard all the teachings, he saw the miracles, but he also was a part of the biggest parts of Christ's life. He saw the transfiguration, he saw Christ die, he saw the resurrection, he saw the ascension, right? He saw it all. In fact, he was so close to Jesus that we see in John's life that Jesus says to John, I want you, once I'm gone, to take care of my mother Mary. So you can see the depth of their relationship. But there's something else that sets John apart from the other disciples. You see, John is the only apostle of Christ that did not die for his faith. Every other apostle died for the faith. Now, 
Why did John not die for the faith? It wasn't because he wasn't talking about Jesus. It was because God was supernaturally protecting him, keeping him safe. There were many attempts on his life, just like the other disciples, but we see that God protected him because he made it all the way to the end of his life so he could die of a natural death. In fact, in church history, we see one of these attempts. We see that they put John into a boiling vat of oil, but yet he came out unscathed, much like our heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. When God would supernaturally protect them, no matter what the odds that they should die, whether it was a a fiery furnace or a lion's den or whatever the situation is, John was taken from that, which is probably why he ended up on the island of Patmos, isolated. Because they couldn't deal with John anymore. They couldn't finish him off. So we thought, they thought, maybe we can just isolate him and, and keep him away so that he can't tell anyone about Jesus. But as our life works, and as God works, he uses every moment of our life, even those moments of isolation, to use us in a mighty way, to, to use us to communicate his message. And so while John was isolated on this island of Patmos, God gave him this revelation, this revelation to write down. And this is what John saw, and this is what John wrote. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, as we're having this conversation about the afterlife and talking about heaven today, you probably have a picture in your mind of what heaven looks like. And if you take your picture, or at least what most people's pictures of heaven looks like, and you compare it to these words, it's kind of confusing, isn't it? Because maybe you're thinking, well, when I die, I float up into the clouds, I get some wings, I play a harp, I'm a little bit smaller and chubbier than I used to be, or whatever it is. And, and that's kind of this caricature of heaven, right? If you read the books or watch the movies, this is kind of the idea that, that we get, a simplistic idea. So if we have that in our minds and we encounter God's truth, there should be a little bit of a conflict here, or at least some confusion here. Because what does John see? He sees a new heaven and a new earth. Which if this version is true, then this doesn't make sense, right? Because if we just float off to heaven, then we don't need a new earth and we don't need a new heaven. So if we want to understand this piece of scripture, what we need to do is really two things. We need to understand, first of all, the heart of God and the purpose of God and what he's trying to accomplish. And we also need to take other pieces of scripture and compare them to the scripture. We must always interpret scripture in light of scripture. So what we need to do is we need to take this section and we need to compare it to something at the very beginning of the story in the book of Genesis. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What did God create in that moment? He created the physical world of everything that is beneath us and the physical world of everything that's above us. And so what we see here, what John is saying is there's going to be a recreation of the physical world around us. In fact, he even gives us more detail, doesn't he? He says, there will be no more sea. Now this part takes some incredible discernment because what he's not saying is there'll be no water or at least any salt water. You see, you need to understand the mind of a first century Christian at this point in time, the original readers of this before we got access to this. You see, in in that place, in that world, how they viewed the sea was a place of of threatening evil, of darkness and sin. And so when John writes this down in this artistic rendering of what will be, he says there will be no more sea. In other words, no more evil, no more threats, no more sin. This recreation, 
that's coming in this, in this vision, in this, in this drawing, is a place where there is no sin, no more threat, no more evil anymore. And John continues. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, as John continues to paint what God is telling him to write, now there's this new visual, a city, Jerusalem, coming down to the earth. Now, is this God just dropping a city onto the earth and, and just letting it hit? No, of course, that's not what's happening here. But there's a lot of meaning in this. Now, if you're familiar with scripture, you know the significance of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where God comes to meet man. This is where the temple was, this is where the Holy of Holies was, this is where the altar was, where God would meet man, he'd forgive their sins, he would connect with them once again, right, in, a, in at least a physical way in this moment to tell the ultimate connection. But this is what Jerusalem was talking about. So when we read Jerusalem here, we get this picture of God connecting with man. And then we see this word bride. Now, once again, if you're familiar with scripture, you know that every time the bride is mentioned, or at least oftentimes when the bride is mentioned, it's talking about followers of Jesus Christ. And so we get this confusing thing where there's a city coming down and it's apparently emblematic of God and, and their bride is there and that's humans. So how does it all fit together? And it's kind of a confusing work of art. But thankfully, we're going to get an explanation. This is what scripture says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. You see, I love this section of scripture because this isn't God leaving it to chance that we'll have to try to look at this artistic rendering and try to figure it out. This is kind of like going to the art gallery, like me and my wife wearing our athletic shorts, our t-shirts, our hats, right? We do not belong. We're staring at a work of art and we have no idea what it's supposed to be or the meaning of it. And all of a sudden someone comes up to me. They're finely dressed, they're cultured, they belong. They have a watch more expensive than my truck and they, and they walk up and they say, do you understand this? And we say, absolutely not. We don't get what we're looking at. We don't know what it means. This person says, well, this is my piece of art. I'm the master painter. Would you like me to tell you what it means? And of course we say, explain it to us so we can understand it, so we can appreciate it, so we can get everything that you're trying to imply. And this is what's happening in this moment. God is not leaving it a chance. So he paints this picture and then he tells us what it means. What does it look like when Jerusalem comes to the new heavens and new earth? And the bride is there. What, what does this mean? What is the implications? Well, he says, God and man will be living together again. God and man will be together again. The curtain will be torn. The Holy of Holies will be everywhere. God and man will be back together just like they were in the garden. Paradise lost will be paradise restored. And then he goes on to explain the implications of this type of relationship. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. You see, when God shows up, he drives out this stuff. When God's perfection and his love shows up, he drives out evil, he drives out pain and sorrow and death. Just imagine what this would be like. Just imagine your life with no pain and, and sorrow and death. 
No COVID, no flu, no cold, no allergies, no physical pain, no arthritis, no knee aches, nothing. No death, no aging. This is amazing. I love the way that this is painted for us. I love the words that John uses. You know what I love about these words that John uses? It's something that we can understand. What John doesn't do is he doesn't paint a picture that, of a world that we can't comprehend. He, he uses these words and these feelings and these experiences that we've all had. We've all experienced death and pain and sorrow. And so we can grasp onto this idea that if we just remove these, if we just took these out of this world, wouldn't that be amazing? Just imagine your life right now, if you were young again, whatever that perfect age, and you did not age anymore. You never had to say goodbye to your mom and your dad and your friends who have died because there would be no more death. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more aches and pains. And then that was true of this world that we currently live in. That'd be pretty good. In fact, I'd be very happy. I'm sure you'd be very happy. I'd be very content. But God actually has something even better planned. This is what he says next. And the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I'm making all things new. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about the caterpillar. The caterpillar turns into a butterfly. And I said, I believe this is something that God has infused into our, our creation story so that we can get a visual of what happens next. If you weren't here, we talked about how the caterpillar, it's born, it eats the egg, it eats the leaf, it just keeps eating and eating and eating and eating until the inside outgrows the outside and then the chrysalis is formed. And then inside the chrysalis, this whole being just becomes like a, a ooze. It just breaks down. But then it's recreated. It's the same but different as it emerges as a butterfly. In the same way, the world will do the same thing. This world be broken down. It will turn into a form of itself and then it will become the same but better. Everything will be made new. Far beyond what we can comprehend. Far beyond what we, we can hold on to like a caterpillar turning into a beautiful winged butterfly. That's what will be of our bodies. That's what will be of our world. Now this seems beyond belief, right? It seems too good to be true, which is why I believe God says this next. He also said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. This is when the artist makes himself known. Who is the artist talking to us? It's God, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, right? The one who has always existed and always will exist. And he says, these words, this description, what I'm telling you about what's next, it is trustworthy and true because I am trustworthy and true. Because God always fulfills his promises. He is always trustworthy. And because he's trustworthy, and because we get a picture of what is next, don't we want to know how to make sure that we get to be a part of this? Don't we want to make sure that we, we are a part of this place where there's no pain and there's no sorrow? Well, the answer comes next. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God and they will be my children. 
Now, if this section sounds familiar, it should. Because this comes from a conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. You might remember this part of the Gospels. Jesus goes to get a drink of water at this well, and this lady comes up. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. He's not supposed to be talking to her because of both of those reasons. But instead, he says, can you get me something to drink? And as she's doing this, they start a dialogue. They start a conversation. And he says, there's, there's a water coming that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. Of course, she says, yeah, I want some of that. Right? I want the water that I never will be thirsty again, that I'll always be perfectly hydrated. I want that. How do I get it? And Jesus points at himself and says, I in the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, right? I am this water. I am the way. You see, tucked into this is something very important that we all need to understand about heaven. You see, heaven is not primarily about a where. Heaven is primarily about a who, which is why so many people miss it. Because if I were to say to you, do you want to go to a place where there's no pain, there's no sorrow, and there's no death? Of course, everyone would say yes. Right? Everyone on the whole planet would say yes. But since heaven is not primarily about a where, but it's about a who, well, that gets really complicated. Because not everyone wants to be in this relationship with Jesus Christ. Not everyone trusts Jesus Christ for their salvation. Not everyone wants to spend eternity with this king. Some people reject him. Some people don't want him in their life. And we actually read about that next. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the adulterers, and the liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, if this list scares you, it should. And if this place scares you, it should. That's the point. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I looked at this list, and I don't really have any of those flaws. Well, if you're in that camp, this is what I encourage you to do. Start at the beginning of the Bible and just start reading. It won't take you very long to find something that you fall short in, because this is not a comprehensive list. So go ahead and just start at the beginning and start reading, and sooner or later you will run into very quickly something where you fall short and then scripture has done its work because you are reminded that you are imperfect and that's where the problem lies because by definition, you cannot go to the perfect place as an imperfect being because you will make that perfect place imperfect. And so we have a problem because the loving presence and the perfect presence of God in this new heaven and this new earth, this place that we, this place that we just call simply heaven, Right, this new heaven, this new earth, his perfection will drive out all imperfection. And he will protect this place from all imperfection. And this is where we get hell. Hell is the quarantine of all things that are imperfect, whether it's sin and brokenness and pain and sorrow. He sends it to this place. And that's where we run into problems. Because as much as God his presence draws all things good to him. His lack of presence creates a vacuum for all things bad. And we already know that we are imperfect people. 
We are broken and sinful, which means the natural vacuum of hell is going to pull us all in. So what do we do? How do we avoid this fate? Well, the answer, of course, is in Jesus. It's in the who. But it's in the who. Jesus wants all people to turn to him, but not all people will turn to him. This is the sad truth of life. But for those who want to receive him, he will make them children of God. That is the promise in scripture that if we will bow our knee to Christ, he will become our king. He will draw us into the family of faith. We will become one in him. And we get to spend the rest of our eternity with Jesus. Because heaven, it's not primarily about a where, it's primarily about a who. And it's through this relationship with Jesus Christ that begins in this life that we are brought into the next. And it's Christ's perfection that will be laid upon us and it's Christ's perfection that will drive out this pain and this sorrow and this death out of his kingdom forever. This is the afterlife that awaits all those who trust in Jesus. Stay